Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We are all entitled to sexual health, just as much as physical and mental health. We want to make it easier for folks to find resources. However they engage with us, there's no wrong door. So it's important that people are able to get access to care that is affirming. Talking about what their sex life is, about their concerns, and to make sure they're healthy. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your sexual health matters. Visit doitforyoumc.org. everyone scott hansen here from nfl red zone i hope you're checking out one hour of five yard rush one of the best podcasts on nfl football in the uk yo what's happening rush nation we're back second show of the week and the big man's back it's not just me i hope you didn't find the waiver wire to show sorry too bad because that's standing for murph but murph you're back how you doing buddy i'm all right i would say i'm uh fit and fiddle i'm a slightly uh Slightly under the weather, but I'm not too bad. Uh, the uh, the wife came home with uh, norovirus, and so uh, that was my evening yesterday, which is why you stepped in uh, brilliantly. You put yourself down doing the Wave Wire podcast, but enough about me. I'm fine. Good, good. Well, as long as you manage to make practice Thursday or Friday, and then you game ready Sunday, I don't mind. That's it. I'm I'm here for the weekend. You know me. It's playoff season. That's it. I mean. Yeah, we'll get into that later on in the week, but let's 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 get to today's guest. So I suppose we've we've got the biggest of the big weeks, Murph. Yeah, we have. We've definitely uh, definitely reeled in a, a big fish today, and I, I feel that I just find it fascinating to talk to people at heads of organisations, uh, especially sports organisations, and um, you know we've we've got some questions we want to ask and uh, and get to know a little bit more for our fans here in the UK. Absolutely. So let's get straight into it. It's the NFL UK Managing Director, Alistair Kirkwood. Alistair, welcome to Five Yard Rush. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Uh, thank you. Yep, I'm, uh, I'm better than one of you, um, <laughs> but I appreciate 
appreciate you toughing it out and manning up. Yeah. Well, it's it's like I said, it's it's a pleasure to be on with you. And uh, yeah, it's you know I'm not too bad. I just fight on and, and keep going. The, the 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 wife had neuroviruses is passing to me, and uh, she's uh, worse off than me. She's uh, the one still in bed, and I'm sort of rebounding. Had some rice. I'm I'm good to go for for another day. There you go. Marvellous. It's a, uh, Alistair, why don't you let everyone know how we get in contact with you and how we manage to get hold of your contact details? Uh, I, um, I'm actually invisible. So I'm, I'm, not on, I'm not on any form of social media formally. I will come out to you guys and say that I have handles in different places, but I do that for lurking. Um, <laughs> and I made, I made a decision fairly early on whilst I kind of do lots of media stuff, um, I didn't, I never wanted it to be about me. I've always wanted it to be about the sport. So I made a decision early on, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Uh, I've got a Facebook account, but I haven't posted on that to family and friends for like four years. (laughs) Um, So, so I, I am on social media pretty much every day but never posting. So, um, so I, I wouldn't say I can't be found because I'm sure that there'll be <laughs> listeners that will take on that challenge. I can be found, but I can't be interacted with. Uh, like the secret service. <laughs> I, I, I love that as a tactic. So you're just on social media, you're monitoring what's going on, getting sentiment, valuable information, but behind all these sort of different mirages, like, like James Bond in a way. Um, well, that would be maybe the first and only time that I'll be compared to James Bond, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we like to be warm and gracious hosts, Alistair. That's, that's why we're here. There you go. Yeah, but don't <laughs> overdo it. Don't <laughs> you, you've got to finish strong as well. <laughs> well, well we got, we got a little bit of time to work that one out. Yeah, I mean, it, it took, with you not being on social media and stuff, it took one of our guys, Lee, running down the side of Wembley Stadium to grab your attention and ask you if you'd come on the podcast, which I, when he told me, he was like, that, that's a fantastic story. He said, yeah, I just saw him, so I ran after him and asked if he'd come on. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. So uh, that's the key to everyone so, listening. So, yeah, so, just, so the moral is just track, track me down at games and I'll be fine. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Alistair, how did you get working into um, sports organisations? What's your what's your background prior to um, being part of the NFL? Uh, so, well, I working for the NFL was my first uh, sports sports job. So, came into it by accident rather than design. Um, by the time March comes round, I'll have been formally with the league twenty years, um, but. Uh, I started. I I started off as an intern for three months. Um, I was doing a master's degree in in the Netherlands. Had to do a three month uh, a three month assignment somewhere, and decided that I wanted to do something that would not lead to a full time job. That was my plan. I just wanted to do something that I was interested in. So I did. I had interviews with the NFL and also FC Barcelona, and it was just uh, do a project provide some help, get get to see behind the scenes, didn't really think about it as a serious or credible um, permanent position. Uh, had a good time having chosen the NFL, uh, got a lot out of it, but then went back to finish my my master's and 
they contacted me maybe about two months later and said that they had a a uh, newly designed job and they wanted to uh, offer it to me. So I said yes and thought that we had then agreed it. And then I got told to go to New York where I had to do 14 interviews in one day, which was like speed dating without any of the benefits. <laughs> uh, so, um, and then started and uh, started off working initially for NFL Europe, then moved over to setting up uh, the NFL UK office, which was at its infancy, just three people, including me, uh, to where we are now. I love that. So, I mean, Alice, a little bit into my sort of personal life, well, professional life. I also work for startup organizations. I've never worked for a smaller organization as three, but I have worked in offices that have had 10 people when, and six people. So um, it's uh, quite daunting. What, what would you say was sort of the biggest challenge for you when you started up the UK office and the UK branch of, of the NFL? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell a story that I've never, never publicly said before. Um, I had put a, there's a longer version, but that would be the whole of your podcast if I did the long version. Um, I did a presentation uh, to Roger Goodell before he was commissioner. And uh, it was a presentation that said we, had, we, we should be refocusing on the UK. You know, it was big in the 80s and 90s. It went, went away in terms of popularity, and an awful lot of it was down to the league itself. And that we, um, we should come up with a program that, that, um, that meant that we could start building the UK back up. So I had a presentation, which I still have, um, said um, if, we can, if we could get Super Bowl on free-to-air, because uh, it was exclusively on Sky back then, and if we could uh, get an amount of money to invest to promote um, TuneIn, then if I reached a million viewers on average, then um, I would come back with a three-year plan as to how we build from it. So, so. After a bit of grilling, he, he agreed to it. So I went back to the UK because uh, the presentation was in New York and uh, got an agreement from Channel 5. N none of the other broadcasters wanted Super Bowl back then. So Sky agreed to to share it with Channel 5, even though they, they uh, didn't get anything for it, which I think shows how, how low the sport was at that moment in time that they didn't even say... Give us some money for putting it on free to air. It was just put it on. We ended up putting it on Channel Five. Um, had to come up with a campaign. We did a marketing campaign, um, which in, initially was focused around Terry Tate. So some of you older listeners will remember Terry Tate from a Reebok ad. Uh, but I got another long-winded story about that. But we. Um, we did a big, big campaign from kind of almost nothing. Uh, Super Bowl was in San Diego that year, and we 
Super Bowl went on and then I stayed up till two 2.30 in the morning Pacific time waiting to see if we got the million viewers or not. And we hit a million and 24,000, which if we had been under a million, then there wouldn't have been a three-year plan and there would have been, I'm not saying none of this would have happened, but certainly wouldn't have happened in the way that it ended happening. Um, it may have taken another few years for someone else representing it. So uh, we got there by the skin of our teeth. We then got a three-year plan that included um, wanting to have regular season games and wanting to set up uh, academies and all sorts of other things. So, so it's a lot of the things that we've ended up putting putting on, we actually had in that first three-year plan, but we were really close to never actually getting off the ground. That's insane. Like how 24,000 out of a million is, is nothing, is it, really? No, it's, it's a couple of dogs hitting a remote control button. Yeah. So, so was that Super Bowl 32 or Super Bowl 37? Do you remember? Uh, it's, the one, it's the one where I think the Ravens won. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> I, I might be going. I have no idea. That, that's uh, I'm answer, thinking it's either the Broncos. It was either the Broncos or the Buccaneers. Uh, let me get back to you on that. I can't no, remember. I'm just kidding. To be honest, that, that Super Bowl was a complete blur to me anyway because I was just anxious um, for how we were performing back in the UK. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, the, the reason I asked, I was at Super Bowl 37, and so I was thought, oh, maybe I wasn't one of your uh, one of your people hitting there because I was at the game itself. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. So sorry if I didn't contribute, but at least you got there anyways. There you go. You made up for it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything, Alistair, in your three-year plan that never came to fruition? No, the timing hasn't necessarily all, always worked out. There, there were a few things that did work out. I mean... It's actually surprising that how the first four or five years, because we had a whole lot of projections as to what we do, an awful lot came out. Um, it's only this year that we announced an academy, um, and that wasn't something that the league wanted to do for quite a few years, um, or what, or it didn't make sense to the league. So, um, so there's probably a couple of things that took took a while. Um, um, but no, for the most part, uh, we've been living the dream. Did you, when you when you first took the job and set up your three year plan after the Super Bowl success, did you ever think there'd be talk of a UK franchise? No, well, to be honest, I hadn't actually taken a, taken on a job. This was when we were still working on NFL Europe. Wow! And I asked for two other. There was me and two other people, um, and we just said, "Let's just do this as a, as a sidebar thing." Um, so it was never kind of within our job description or or our goals or anything like that. We just did it ourselves. And it wasn't until 2006 that we actually had a formalized NFL UK office. Um, so, so first of all, um, it was it was more a case of the sport and the popularity of the sport was probably at its lowest in this country and you're trying to build it back up, then um, we didn't really get asked about franchise potential till maybe 
two or three years after playing the first game. Uh, and then it's usually media just wanting another angle. But, but when we first when we played the first game in 2007, the vast majority of media um, that were questioning us were didn't actually think it was going to be popular, didn't think we would sell out. Um, second question I got asked by someone from the Daily Mail was, uh, what job are you going to get um, after this? Because it won't be successful. So... <laughs> So I think we've come quite a long way because somewhere along the line about maybe six, seven years, it kind of flipped. And then the media started talking everything up. And we started going, no, 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 we've got to go slowly. <laughs> Interesting. Really, really fascinating stuff. So let's fast forward to, to this year and this international series. What has the, the new stadium at, at Tottenham brought to... NFL UK and the international series for you and for NFL UK as a, as a market uh, leader now? So let's, from a practical perspective, the first thing is um, gives us more optionality. When we were playing one game a year, um, it was relatively straightforward to announce and to organize. Once you move to three or four games a year, then we are one of the biggest pains possible for the schedulers uh, back in back in New York because I don't think I think what people don't recognise is that we have um, it's eight teams that are then coming over so it's a quarter of the league and we therefore affect every 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 form of schedule uh, what Fox and CBS cover on a, each Sunday. Uh, if a team wants to take a bye week the week after, um, also if a team has a strong opinion as to whether they want to play home or away the week before, particularly if you're a West Coast team. So there's so many different other variables. And so we have we have to be clearer back to New York as to when, this, when we're able to play games, so when stadiums are available. So, so the most practical thing is having Spurs gives us more flexibility to be able to put on those games. The second thing is, I think, um, having a custom-made stadium, which is fit for the NFL, as opposed to one that we have to change and transform, I think gives us more credibility within the US, because players, coaches, and general managers come to the games, and it's almost like a turnkey solution, and it gives them more confidence about us going forward. And then I think from a fan perspective, whilst I know that um, uh, the ticketing policy wasn't a, a, a popular one, I think having the, the ability to compare and contrast, so 84,500 at Wembley with National Stadium history heritage and 60,000 60, Spurs with modern technology and state-of-the-art, means that you've got a really nice kind of combination and two different types of experiences. No, I, I agree yeah. with that. And it's a, it's a marvellous facility and, uh, and credit to you and the team for, for executing that because I, I noticed being at the games and I've been to quite a few in the States that it is as, as good, if not better, than um, quite a few of the stadiums I've been to in the US. The atmosphere was great and it just, it felt like, we were in America watching a game. It didn't feel like... Well, 
Yeah, well, I think the best compliment, we got a lot of compliments, but um, the best compliment I got was from uh, O.C. Manure and Jason Bell, who were uh, standing on the sidelines for the first game. And both of them said that it was um, like being in a playoff game. And that is, that's about the biggest compliment you can get from, a, from an NFL player because uh, for those that have not been lucky enough to go to Super Bowls, Super Bowls are, are good, but they're corporate. You know, 50, 60% of the, of, the, of the crowd are there for the experience. They're not there because of the teams. The best games, in my opinion, to go for are playoff games where uh, you know, 100% of the fan base is local. They're absolutely rabid and desperate for their teams to advance. And the fact that they were saying that the atmosphere and the vibe was at that level, yet, you know, again, with London games, it's not like everybody is there that are fans of the teams. There's an awful lot of neutral fans. For us to have that kind of atmosphere is credit to the fans and also the stadium itself. No, absolutely. I I mean, it is just breathtaking when you go there and you, you take it in and anybody who hasn't had the opportunity to go and gets the opportunity to go in future years, um, I think they'll agree that it's just a, it's just a, a level up from from anything it's just amazing for us as fans of the sport to be able to take in a game at all yet alone three four games a year and, and now in the facilities that Tottenham can offer is just is just incredible I was just going to say do you have a favorite of the two stadiums obviously now we've had two at Tottenham this year and then two at Wembley um I got I got two kids I got two I got two kids it's kind of like asking which one's your favorite kid that Wembley is where we we started, and I've got tremendous memories of of loads of things that we've done uh, there. Spurs is the new shiny toy, so they offer two different things. With Wembley, you have kind of vastness; it's just the scale of it kind of blows you away. It's a big statement, right? And it's and it puts us up there with the best of other sports be able to say that you you can fill Wembley and put on a great event and Spurs has a different atmosphere and a different vibe it's a lot more intimate whilst it's 60,000 the way it's constructed this, every seat is really kind of almost on top of the field so you actually get a really good uh, viewpoint so uh, I'm, not, I'm not, not dodging the question it's kind of genuine I, I like both for different reasons that's fair enough. I thought maybe you had one specific over the other, but like you say, you've got memories and stuff at Wembley and I imagine they're difficult, well, impossible to replace with a couple of games at Tottenham. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed Tottenham and I think as a stadium itself, regardless of the NFL, it's a beautiful bit of, of building and then the service, staff service and everything about it was fantastic. So it's a great addition. Um, apart from the success of the stadium, is there any other major successes that you think happened in the 2019 International Series? Sorry, apart from... Apart from the, the new stadium success. Um, I think I think getting to 31 out of 32 teams to have come over was was huge for us. So having Houston and Carolina come over was, was, was great. Um, I also thought that um, 
the broadcast the broadcast coverage that we had of the games was really good. Uh, we had two on the network, one on Fox and one on CBS in the states, and then two at Sky and, and two on BBC. So um, overall, I thought it was a really good series, and we were incredibly nervous going into the Spurs games because it's a it was a relatively new stadium even for Spurs themselves, and you kind of for Wembley, you kind of know what you're doing because we played so many games there. And there was definitely kind of nervous energy going on for weeks ahead of time. Um, I would, I could surprise you guys with stories about some of the um, worst case scenario plannings that we were working on and different, different things that could, that, that we might not have be, be strong about just because all of us were playing playing and operating the stadium for the first time. Often we forget that for, for even for teams that have come over before, a lot of their players and coaches have never been over. So for them, it's a first-time experience. And it was the first time for us as an office since 2007 for us to be able to say none of us have had any experience either. So, so overall, just thought it was a good, a good strong series. I couldn't agree more. It's... Uh... It was a highlight. I didn't go to as many games this year as I normally would, but the the games I did have the opportunity to go to was fantastic. It was it was just brilliant. I, one of the concerns I had was going in the transport out of Tottenham, um, having been at the old stadium um, for you know soccer matches. Um, appreciate it. it can be quite difficult, but they seem to have really worked on the the transport links and everybody that was volunteering and guiding people to tube stations um, made it really seamless. And, and actually the issues I've kind of experienced with much smaller crowds of 30, 35,000 people weren't there with 60,000 people. So I think testament to the logistics of, of the stadium for putting in a new um, train station and getting things sorted, but also to all the volunteers to funneling people out because it didn't leave people held up for too long, which I thought was going to be a really big problem. Yeah, and that's kind of you to say. I mean, there's a there's a ton of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, that's true of every every big event or or sports event. Um, but you also know that um, if we've done a misstep at Spurs, then it could actually damage kind of the UK messaging back in, back to the league in general. So, so I'm pleased. Um, about that and then uh, we survey 2,000 fans after every single game so we get ratings on every aspect and uh, the games that we did this year were the highest ratings that we've had for out of any years that we've been doing this so so uh, it was well received but just means that the bar has been raised for next year. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, One of the areas that I'm sure that you probably get asked about or have seen on social media in one of your shadow accounts is, is tickets. <laughs> and um, I know that, you know, we're part of a large community that felt um, that their loyalty was kind of, you know, almost used because they were promised by signing up to season tickets at Wembley, they would get first priority season tickets at Tottenham. And then that didn't plan out. I mean, what would be your opportunity to speak to some of those fans on here who were perhaps really disappointed with not being able to get um, season tickets for Tottenham and 
and what potentially can they do to secure season tickets for for next year? Yeah, so I've put some of the language around about me on social media. I haven't heard since my wife last lost her temper on me. Um, but I would say that um, most of most of the reaction um, was understandable, and if I was in fan shoes, then I would probably also um, express my frustration as well. Um, the the challenge the challenge that we've had is that um, we made a we made a form of commitment without really knowing how things were going to work and operate. So we start, we we struck an agreement with Spurs back in 2015 and really started working on the stadium from 2016 onwards. Went to, took Spurs to about 20 different NFL stadiums so in the States so they could uh, learn from the best and also what worked and what didn't work. And, and um, all that kind of stuff. Um, when it came to doing these games this year, the ticket systems that are operated by Spurs as opposed to by Wembley, even though the public sees it as Ticketmaster, uh, the actual operating systems are two different ones. And we, when we were playing at Twickenham, we experienced some behind the scenes some tremendous problems and issues in terms of mistakes and errors. Because if you if you imagine if you're not kind of in the ticketing world, if you've got two operating systems that don't talk to each other and two different stadia that have different designs, then you can you can come into some serious problems. We were under the assumption when Spurs was initially being built that it would be similar operating systems. And then in the end, for reasons that got nothing to do with NFL games, they went through a different a different way. So so fans were right that we had said something and then we didn't follow through with it. But the reason why we didn't follow through with it is because we went through a discovery process that even with hindsight, there's no way that we could have actually forecasted that it would have worked out like that. And some of it was out with our control. So um, so that's one issue. And then the second issue is the size and scale of um, Wembley compared to Spurs means that if we were to be consistent with the number of people that could buy for all games. Let's now assume that all the ticketing system issues worked and were seamless and from a customer point of view would 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 work well. We would have to cap the number of season tickets down from Wembley so substantially now that now because it's one thing to know that it's a sixty thousand seat capacity. It's another thing to actually do a, 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 a true seat manifest once the stadium's actually built. So the ticketing guys, and this is true of anywhere uh, for any stadium, cannot actually lay out how 
how you would sell tickets and how you would group them and how you would price them and all those kind of things till the stadium is actually physically built. So that is true of, of Spurs with their, with their own fans as well as, as well as with us. So, um, so I have tremendous empathy and I apologize for the frustration that people will have gone through. There just probably needs to be a little bit of trust that it's not our intention to upset and and kind of frustrate fans. Our business is to try and actually grow fans and make people love the sport more. So, so there's only two possible scenarios that could go on. One is we're not very good at our job or behind the scenes things are m- much more complicated than than we can actually articulate. And it's certainly the latter. There might be a little bit of the former. We could always improve and get better. But it's not with it was not with any intention of misleading people. It's just more the more we keep doing, the more things happen and the narrative kind of shifts and changes. Yeah. And I, I think anybody who is disappointed can can understand that. I think it's just um you can, you know, like you say, you can understand the, the, the disappointment. And, and the other part of the disappointment that almost fueled the fire was that minutes after season tickets were being bought, tickets were ending up on a secondary market, which, whilst not illegal, <clears throat> is obviously infuriating when you're trying to, to, to buy tickets. And luckily, you know, Stocks and I, we, we got our season tickets. We, we were one of the lucky ones that, that did, but we did know people who weren't able to get them and appreciate that the secondary market and reselling isn't illegal in the UK. What is the NFL UK's sort of looking forward as to some of the challenges they've had this year and you've had this year trying to potentially stop that or reduce it so that more genuine fans get tickets um, from the original so, point of sale? Yes. So we, we do a lot behind the scenes and I've said previously that I'm not never going to say publicly what we do because as soon as you actually say it, then you're actually telling uh, people that are doing that how to actually get around it. So, so, um, so for the 2018 games, we cancelled four thousand, just over four thousand tickets on the season ticket side of things um, through different devices, through different ways of uh, monitoring, measuring um, uh, suspicious buying patterns, and other things. Right, so there are things that we do, but we are always playing catch up. As part of my role of social media stalker, I also see loads of examples around the games of of fans or people posting complaining about how unhappy they are about policy and how can real fans get get to buy. And then I'll see lots of different individual examples of people going. Uh, but I can't go to this game or I can't go to that game, so I'm now putting them up for sale. Now, it's one thing if it goes through a controlled environment where it's for um, for um, genuine fans to be able to buy from, from other fans. It's another thing for it to be, um, for, for people that are criticizing it to, to then actually do it when it when it suits them as well. So 
we've looked at different mechanisms. We've looked at things like photo IDs and other things, but then photo IDs, particularly if people aren't used to it, would massively hold up queues around the stadium. Um, there also, there's also not completely foolproof, um, and it also punishes people who may pass over tickets for, as presents or for other uh, genuine reasons. It's not like a Glastonbury where it's where you, the sequencing of when fans can go into an event uh, can be controlled. Ours is a game that will kick off at a certain time and end at a certain time. Um, we trialed for a short period of time for a few weeks ticket exchange uh, with Ticketmaster, which was um, ability for fans that wanted to put their tickets up for sale, but that they they um, couldn't profit from it. Um, and that was reasonably successful. We were testing it because we had not we hadn't used that mechanism before, and we were concerned that if it if it failed, um, and alongside kind of all the other furore around around our testing, that wouldn't be a good look. So we tested it for I want to say three or four weeks, and it worked pretty well. And it's definitely something that we'll look at for next year. Because I think the best way of trying to dampen uh, the secondary market is by giving people alternative ways of doing it. But I, I genuinely can't figure out how you can actually stop someone that wants to buy a ticket in order to profit from it because they think there's demand for it. That happens until it's that such time as it's illegal. It can only be us trying to put our best foot forward to try and solve for it, but um, but it's not a foolproof plan. No, and I, and I appreciate that, and I think it's it's very difficult. And you know, I I know a lot of people who have been disappointed, but then I also know a lot of people who have benefited from using more ethical companies such as Twickets, who refuse uh, any ticket to be sold above its face value and charge very minimal in fees. Um, so. It sounds like if if more can be done with the secondary markets, it, it could mean that it could be more useful and hopefully less appear on Viagogo and all these other sort of money-making markets that just destroy the event in, in some regards to price gouging and, and just making money out of it, which is not what anybody wants. Yeah, and I just want to be clear that we don't make any money from the secondary market and, and never have done. So, so we sell the tickets and we try and sell them to to the, um, the right group of people but um but those people that want to work the system are probably more knowledgeable as to how to work the system than the people that police it and control it so so we will continually make it a priority but it but it's not um it's not without its challenges. I'm sure. So, Alistair, I, I appreciate the 2019 season isn't over, but can you give us any sort of ideas what we can maybe expect from the 2020 International Series in terms of fan events, teams, or anything like that yet? Or is it all under lock and key? Uh, it's all under lock and key, and behind the scenes, it's moving targets. Uh, I jokingly think about 
game matchups as my own version of fantasy football because um, I get the opportunity of trying to see whether we can get this team to play this team and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, there's, I think, I, I think we've got a fairly good sense of when we can play because we've got some agreements from this from the two stadia as to when we when they're available. Um, but I doubt that we will know ourselves for sure. Probably till February, be my guess, and then probably announcing sometime in March or April. But again, that's just guesswork at the moment. Fair. If you, if you could aim for April the 18th, that would be a great birthday for me. <laughs> okay, and then all, all your listeners going, why are we waiting so long? But I'll do it just for you. <laughs> well, if, if they know it's for my birthday, they'll be cool with it. Okay, well, you trust your <laughs> listeners more than I trust my fans. I was going to say, I, I, no. I, don't, I don't have the same trust you do. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's fine. That's fine. You mentioned fantasy football. Let's talk about it. Do you play Alistair? And if so, how's your season going? Right. So here's my fantasy football history. So I've I've played ESPN fantasy football since 1996. Played every year. Played in multiple leagues. Uh, since they moved ESPN a few years ago to free model, it's got a lot easier because you end up having dormant teams playing against you. Uh, so so ESPN is actually quite good for your ego you you keep thinking oh killing these people and then you realise that they're still playing Antonio Brown or whatever Um, then we have an office league on NFL.com and have had for a number of years and that I might argue I'm going to say a punchy controversial statement I might argue is about the toughest fantasy league around because we have 16 teams in the league. And if you can imagine what the waiver wire looks like when you have 16 teams, uh, we we pull people together. So there's usually three or four owners per team. And it's mixed up between people that consume football and others that are kind of relatively new to the game. And it's, a, it's really tough. I mean, you're looking for like Miami Dolphins, fourth, fourth running back in case two others get injured and you know that the Dolphins don't have a running game, but you desperately want them on the waiver wire just because you want someone that might be, might play at some point. Uh, so uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, the team that I share has got through to the final, uh, the final round of the playoffs. So, so we got uh, two weeks left. So I'm, I'm due to play, uh, the hot favourite who's stacked with with great players um, and hoping to get through to to the final, but but if not, we've done pretty well just to get to uh, to the conference championships. Well, yeah, anything can happen. You know, it might be that one week he doesn't, his players don't turn up, and you squeak into the final. He's got he's got everything that you want in a team. So um, <laughs> no, I think the only I, the the beauty and the beast, as you guys know of, of NFL fantasy, is that uh, you can be really strong through the season, and then come week sixteen, seventeen, it's crapshoot as to 
who's resting and who's starting. So, so if I could actually play that team the following week, I'd fancy my chances just because uh, there might be some some players that uh, might might uh, get rested. But don't think I'll be fortunate this Sunday. Best of luck. The fantasy football is really growing in the UK, and is the NFL UK doing anything to help grow? Is to to help grow the the fantasy football community? I mean, do you have any engagement with the the fantasy football community yourself? Or I know you don't, but the NFL UK. So uh, had a potted history in terms of fantasy. Uh, got a, an incredible number of UK fans playing the NFL dot com uh, game. I mean really really impressive in terms of uh, how many of us play that game over here uh the we've tried in the last two or three years to introduce some fancy light uh, type competitions because uh, one of one of the barriers particularly is to for newer fans is unless you draft you unless you commit first of all and play and draft before the start of the season under the kind of current format of, of those types of leagues, you can't actually participate if you get into the sport halfway through. So we've tried different different mechanisms such as NFL Challenge, Playoff Challenge, other things where you can join in at different points of the season irrespective. Uh, I don't think we've always cracked it. I think we keep trying to to do that in order to, to build that out. But um, uh, to me, fantasy works on two different levels. One is if it's very social, so you're with a group of mates and you want to join a league and you will pull in together. The other is if you don't have those mates involved, then you you need help in terms of uh, what your experience should be like and, and how you do it. So we've probably put more focus into the second part than the first part in the last two or three years. When we first set up NFLUK.com, we put a lot of emphasis with with regards to fantasy. We partnered with Sky. We built up um, big numbers. Then we made a strategic decision to make it much more about NFL.com, and that's been pretty successful. Yeah, I mean, we we one of the things we felt was necessary is making listener leagues because, like you say, you if you don't have a load of friends, you can create a league with, and it's maybe you and one other, or even just yourself, and you you. You don't want to jump into like one of your ESPN leagues you mentioned where it's just a bunch of nobodies you don't know and you wanted to play. We we thought that by creating listener leagues and we try and get the community to engage together a bit more and maybe that way you've got a league of active players and, and stuff like that. Is Do you think that's the biggest challenge for people in the UK who want to play fantasy football is, is the fact that they might not necessarily know enough people to get a league together? I think that's part of it. I think the second one is, as I said, you need to kind of commit to doing it in the first week of September at the latest. And once you miss that, then you've kind of missed the boat. And then for those that are relatively new to the sport, the scoring system and the commitment to kind of understanding uh, player pools and depths and all sorts of other things means that there, there could be a barrier to kind of the full experience, which is why we've been trying to do the let's actually give you sampling experiences and hoping that people will get into it in that way and then as a result upgrade to the real experience and the full experience you know the following season yeah yeah i, th- I think that makes sense i think um i i, I would say that 
you know, if you're just getting into the sport, I would say that playing fantasy football is arguably just as good as as watching it in the sense of you start to get to know some names. You maybe at this point don't know who you're going to follow as a team. So you start watching Red Zone and you start picking, you start looking for the players that you've drafted, if they're any good or not. And you start to learn some of the scoring systems and the importance of yards and interceptions and some of the more basic understanding. So I think... I think you're and, right. And you also start and you start caring about Bengals Cardinals or whatever. <laughs> yeah, with, exactly. all, with all due respect to any Bengals Cardinals fans, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, exactly that. Because all of a sudden you've got uh, Joe Mixon in your lineup, and you're thinking, "Well, I need Joe Mixon to to go off." And even though the Bengals are a one and twelve, um, you know, yeah, it's yeah, I, had a, I, had, I had a terrible time um, on Sunday night because I think I was twenty five points up. My opponent still had Robert Woods left. And if you look, if you look through, he hadn't scored a touchdown all season. So I'm sitting there going, "Okay, we're done. We're on to next Sunday." And then Robert Woods got thrown to everywhere, had a couple of running plays, scored his first touchdown, and I started seeing it whittle away. Genuinely, other than as a fan, wasn't that interested as to who would win between Rams and Seahawks. But I so much wanted the Seahawks defense to step up and just <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so it gives you it gives you real reasons to root for things that you wouldn't necessarily root for otherwise. No, absolutely. I I one hundred percent feel you on that. I saw on my love and hatred for AJ Brown did a complete three hundred and sixty degree flip on Sunday night. I was playing my brother in law in the last game of the regular season. I was up by 35 points and he had two players left to play. AJ Brown was one of them and then uh, someone in the Pats Kansas City game and I had Kelsey left and I saw a post on Facebook about how AJ Brown had told a kid that if he got good grades, he'd give him a shirt. I thought, oh, that's really nice. Well done, AJ Brown. And then about three minutes later, it popped onto Red Zone that he'd scored a 90-odd yard touchdown and... uh, yeah, there was 17 fancy points against me right away, and I ended up losing by 10. So, yeah, stings. Can you hear that? That's that's your listeners either consoling or laughing at you. I'm not sure which one. Well, I, I'd say laughing because Murph was laughing. So if he is, they are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is you play your brother-in-law about 20 times a week, so it's hard to know which one of these was actually important or not. That, that, that was the big one. That, that was yeah. the big one. Okay. So in terms of then... Going forward, is there any anything for the fantasy community maybe for, for next year that might be looked at from an NFL UK perspective? Maybe some, I don't know, opportunities to play with well-known names in the NFL UK community or maybe some form of contest or something. Is that something that, that could happen or is being looked at? Uh, it, we've got it within our business plan. We've got lots of different ideas. Uh, maybe kind of what we should probably do given... Uh, the following of your community why don't you ask ask your listeners to send in to you their best ideas and then you guys send them over to us and we'll we'll take them on board and see what can be done well there you go rush nation you you heard it from uh from the man himself so get those ideas across and we'll we'll forward them on moving lastly then to an nfl team in London and appreciate you probably can't give us a, a, a definitive answer on this because quite a lot of it's obviously out of your control. But do you think that if somebody turned around to you 
in the next year or two and said, we want to move a team to London. Do you think we have the infrastructure and the fan base to not only, you know, make that happen, but to make it thrive and, and actually have an NFL team in London? Uh, I think we definitely have the fan base. I think, I think fans sometimes, again, this is me lurking on social media, but sometimes miss actually, actually misunderstand the London franchise concept because I think people, people that are passionate and are, I don't know, diehard Packers fans or Redskins fans or whatever, having a London franchise is not about them, right? It's not, we're not saying by putting a London team in that you should flip over and support, support this team. Possibly they might be your second favorite team, but certainly it's not about existing fans. It's about could you actually become even bigger and more relevant in this market to those people that aren't necessarily fans at, at this point in time? Because ultimately, if we were to have a franchise, we'd just have more football. And if we have more football, then you get a chance, to, a greater chance of your own team coming over and playing here. So, um, and the other thing that I've that I would always say is that back in the late 90s, Jacksonville and Carolina became new teams. Before those teams took place, in Jacksonville and in Carolina, there would have been Cowboys fans, Steelers fans, or, or whatever. They, it, it, it just happens and can evolve. So, so I believe we have the fan base to um, support the team through thick and thin. I think the infrastructure... We're mostly there, but a challenge will be probably more on scheduling. So having the, having the flexibility to play as many games as possible um, at different weeks so that the schedule actually uh, works out well is, is still something that we need to work through. You know, there are things like if there was a London team and they were successful enough to, to have home field advantage going through to the playoffs, the way time slots for playoffs take place currently, there'd probably be some playoff windows where where it wouldn't actually work for us. You know, playing at eleven twenty at night on a Sunday night, for example, is not going to be good with our with our transport system. So I still think that there's quite a few things to work work on behind the scenes. But I don't think any of it is significant enough that you'd actually say it will never happen. It actually really starts with if an owner or the league says it wants it to happen, then we'll actually find a way around that. So, so I believe it can work out, but there are lots of things that we've progressed, and there's still other things that we won't know of. But this kind of this kind of debate kind of reminds me of when we played the very first game, when uh, a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to work out, that it was going to be terrible terrible quality of game, uh, that um, jet lag uh, was going to be a major issue and all those kind of things. And you've, once you actually do it, if you do it with the right approach, then you stand a much better chance of it working out. The franchise model is much more complicated than just putting a single game on, but the concept is still the same, which is we're all about trying to set up the environment for the league to decide what it wants to do. And it if it's multiple games, then that's all well and good. If it's a franchise, then that's all well and good. So my starting point is where we where we started the interview, which was I start when I joined the league. American football in the UK was 
was kind of a guilty secret for those that followed. All I want is for the sport to be as popular as it can be, so that more people can get uh, get to enjoy it, and uh, your podcast goes from strength to strength. <laughs> well, that would be great. So, on your personal preference, then, would you prefer an NFL franchise or say eight games a year where different teams came over? It's my own personal thing. It's not. It's not kind of me talking on behalf of the league. I prefer a franchise over multiple games because. I think you need a, to get to the next level of popularity, you need a narrative and it's something different that for for people to hook into. So we've put a lot of work in the last three or four years on player pathway and developing players like F.A. Obada and Christian Wade and others so that you've got British players playing in the NFL that will be hooks. We've set up an academy to get hopefully some future players seeded in uh, to the NFL going forward. So if we were never to have a team over here, it's all well and good. I think I think we can continue this model. And by by being more local and relevant, we'll go from strength to strength. And we've got first ever British coach um, coaching the Atlanta Falcons, which you know five years ago would have been a crazy idea. So we we can continue to grow whether we have a team or not. But personally. I think the model that is most sustainable and most exciting is to have a franchise. Yeah. I'd like a franchise as well because since doing the podcast, I mean, I started off as a Denver Broncos fan and I still am a Denver Broncos fan, but having done the podcast and being so involved with fantasy football, my love for the game as a whole, I think has overtaken my fandom for the Denver Broncos. So if we were to get a franchise, I would fully jump behind them and I think they'd probably end up becoming my team just because of how local they are to us as opposed to obviously Denver's a million miles away per se. But I think last question, and do you think there's ever going to be an NFL event held in London, such as the draft or anything along those lines? I think the draft will be difficult for a couple of reasons. One is it's in the last five years that the draft as a concept has exploded, right? Since they started moving it out of New York and into other communities. And it's, an opportunity, whether it's Chicago, Nashville, or others, it's an opportunity for those cities that don't get Super Bowls to then get a major, major event. And so I think we have to be respectful, first of all, to the fact that the draft in its current form is relatively new, and there'll be lots of people and lots of cities that, that would want that. I think, secondly, College football would need to be much more popular and prevalent here for it to make sense than as a as a mechanism. I think, whilst personally I'm not a big fan of the idea of Super Bowl coming to London, I think if definitely if you were to have a franchise here, then history has shown that new franchises get Super Bowls within the next three or four years. Um, so that that is possible. If, if that sequencing was to happen. Uh, although, again, personally, I think Super Bowl is quintessentially American and it's and it's uh, part of the fabric there that, that you need to be really careful on on making sure that we just don't move move too much around. You know, because whilst we as a organisation have broken the mould in trying to get the league to think about things differently by playing regular season games or having uh, British players playing in the NFL or other things that we've tried to do, 
at the core of it, you actually still want to be respectful to what actually makes the sport great, and that's and that's kind of parity. That's putting the best events on in the best places. So that's a really long-winded way of saying I don't know, but <laughs> I got there in the end. Actually, I, also, I have one one final question, and appreciate what you have done and everything you've done with, with NFL UK. And I'm sure there's some other countries out there. The ones that immediately spring to mind are. Germany and Brazil do you think there's a chance that within the next I don't know five years that the international series will expand out of the UK and Mexico and you might start to see regular season games in say Germany or Brazil or or anywhere else for that matter yeah I I think Germany is a no-brainer not up to me but but I think it's a no-brainer and in many ways Germany kind of mirrors the UK insofar as they closed the Europe League down in Germany in 2007, and then it took a period of time to get confidence back in the market, and now it's going it's going from strength to strength, and the, the fandom is crazy, and we get two and a half to 3,000 Germans coming to the London games um, for each game, which, which shows how passionate they are over there. In the same way as we were popular in in the late 80s and early 90s and then went away and then the league lost confidence. So I I would fully expect in the next whenever three to five years of playing games in Germany, I think they probably uh, will look at the likes of Canada and Brazil and other places. I think think ultimately it depends on the infrastructure and the stadium and whether the teams themselves want to go there. Because the thing that I don't think people necessarily appreciate, uh, although they'll understand when I've said it, is that coaches in particular are creatures of habit. So none of them want to be told that they're trailblazers. They're playing in a new market for the first time. They all want to be the last ones to play because they want to actually have learned all the mistakes or challenges or logistical issues from international travel. Whenever you go into a new market, you've got to really work well with the teams and make sure that you've got a front office and a, and, a, and a coaching staff that are willing to go with the flow. There, there are some teams where they're just set up in a way where they just want routine and they don't want any anything that's out with their control. And the thing we've ultimately got to respect from all of this is that as great as the games are for us as fans, they're business trips at the end of the day for, for the teams themselves. Amazing. 100%. I can't wait. I I genuinely hope Germany get a game and to get the opportunity to go and watch a game there, I think would be incredible because I've had the opportunity to interact with German fans through this and, and being at games. And you, as you say, so many fly over, it'd be incredible to watch Germany get a game oh, and to, and, 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 the and the atmosphere will be unbelievable. Yeah. It yeah. I mean, I mean, I've been to, well, I've worked games um, back in NFL Europe with, Frankfurt Galaxy playing Ryan Fire with 59,000 people um, in the stadium sold out. And apart from the fact that it was a terrible game, it was the 3-0 game, um, which is about as bad luck you can get for, for that kind of attendance. The atmosphere was as good as you'll see in most NFL stadiums. So I have absolutely no doubt that um, when they play games in Germany, there'll be a roaring success. And Hopefully for UK fans, it'll be an opportunity for them to do the day trip in the same way as the Germans do to to us. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think stocks will have to... Uh, oh, in October. Do it in October. Oh, 
<laughs> two bucket lists, in, uh, two bucket list moves in one go. Go to Oktoberfest and go to NFL. That's the one. That is the <laughs> one. Alistair, this has been an absolute blast. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on. We will uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on to tell your Reebok story and how you got on in your fantasy football this season. But yeah, we massively appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All the best, guys. Appreciate your time. Anytime. You so anytime. Cheers. Murph, this has been... As always, an absolute pleasure, big man. I will catch you tomorrow on the flagship. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we've changed the order a little bit, unfortunately, due to just a bit of uh, sickness. So this is, yeah, so it'll be flagship tomorrow. And then I will also get uh, the Look Ahead podcast. So you'll be getting those hopefully for Thursday and Friday. I'll get one recorded on Wednesday and do the first slate of games and then the second half on Friday. Uh, for the latest late games and if there's anything that's changed in between I'll, I'll keep everyone up to date as always yeah for sure so don't forget to check out the injury report which will be going out sometime tomorrow Murph that's right isn't it it's uh, scheduled for seven o'clock I've just got to make a couple of updates as uh, Mike Evans is out for the season um, I had him out for week 15 but he's out for the season so that's a shame it's a real shame for me he's, he's my favorite player um, so I'm gutted not to not to watch him anymore this season but you know, it just gives us an opportunity to watch someone like Justin Watson come through and uh, see what he can do. Absolutely. 100%. Rush Nation, don't forget to at us on 5 Yard Rush with those fantasy football ideas for the NFL UK because anything we can send over to them will be an absolute bonus. But until tomorrow's flagship show, hope you enjoyed Alistair Kirkwood because I know I sure did. As always, Rush Nation, keep rushing. entitled to sexual health, just as much as physical and mental health. We want to make it easier for folks to find resources. However they engage with us, there's no wrong door. So it's important that people are able to get access to care that is affirming. Talking about what their sex life is, about their concerns, and to make sure they're healthy. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your sexual health matters. Visit doitforyoumc.org. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 